Welcome back to More in Common Podcast. This conversation is with Ben Colin Sussman and Brian Fitz, Fitzpatrick. Just continuing part two. I hope you enjoyed part one and got a little reprieve this past week, had a good weekend. And hey, if you like this, like it, share it, leave us a comment, let us know. All right, we'll get to it. I love building stuff too. And and that's, I always tell people I'm not entrepreneurial. What I really mean is I am not interested in startups. I'm not interested in being in a startup. I'm not interested in starting my own business. Everybody assumes that that's what everybody does, right? Or that that's the American way or something. And I'm like, no, because it's pain and it's not the risk. The pain reward ratio is not there for me. And it is for some people, right? That's it. I love building stuff creatively in a group of collaborators and my entire career and every of my 27 hobbies revolves around that pattern. Find a bunch of smart, creative people, form a think tank, build something cool and creative. The one thing I learned in the, during the pandemic, and you learn about this in classes too, right? Privilege is a relative thing too, often. And I mean, it, it's contextual, right? So in whatever, in DNI trainings, they talk about, you know, oh, learn to be sensitive about privilege, or if there's someone from an underrepresented group on your team, understand that the world might be different for them. How do you get that compassion? But what I learned is during the pandemic, when everyone's at home, in some sense, it's a great equalizer, right? Because everyone's dialing into meetings, right? On the other hand, privilege shifts in really weird ways, and people are suffering in different ways that you never even thought about or even knew before. And, you know, in the beginning, I remember people making generalizations being like, well, it's only people with kids who are having trouble working at home. And then you get into it and you're like, oh, wait, no. What about like people living alone, right? They're suffering in a completely different way, right? And, and that wasn't obvious at first to people. Or roommates don't get along with. Or roommates <laughs> don't get Or people that live alone that are high risk. Yeah. Yep. So they can't even just yep. go out and get what they need. Yeah. Yeah. So it required expansion of compassion, let me put it that way, to recognize new forms of privilege and new forms of suffering, I guess. Right? <laughs> this is such a good example of like what the other side can look like that I just like don't get to experience a lot in my life, except for you. And you're my friend, so if you weren't, I would just punch you. For people who can't see it, because you, you mentioned earlier, like once you get to management, you have the vantage point to see it, which is true, but many still don't. So like, what kind of advice do you give your peers for like how they can get there? And it's going to be different for everybody. But like, if you could generalize it for somebody who's like, yeah, I just don't see it, yo. Yeah. Like, where does it come from for you guys? Is it natural? Is it learned? Like to see other people's experiences and go, oh, that's different than mine versus that that ain't true. Well, Fitz touches hot stoves. That's how he learns. He just. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean you can't quit your job? (laughs) I don't know what got me over that over that hill. I am pretty sure that before I got over that hill, there were a lot of people out there that tried to help me and like understand what the hell's going on and like that I've got a different perspective and different privilege than other people. And I don't know. I've thought about this a lot. I don't know what it is that got me over the hill. But like, you could have come up to me and told me in any different type number of words, any different way. You could mime it. Could send me a cartoon. I probably wouldn't have carrier pigeon, carrier pigeon. I wouldn't have heard it until I was ready to hear it. I'm just weird because my parents were both shrinks. They are deceased now, but I grew up 
in a house with two shrinks for parents. They were marriage counselors. Every single night at the dinner table, my brother and me just listening to them talk about other people's marriages with each other was super weird. But then also, you know, we spent our childhood being psychoanalyzed. Oh, you're just going through a phase. You're going through phase, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, you're the psychology major. Right? Oh, your little brother. So, you know, <laughs> like it's, oh, you're going through that phase. Don't worry. That Next, you'll be in the blah, blah phase. And I'm like, what are you, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> but I ended up learning how to listen even as a kid. So even in high school and college, I was everybody's therapist. And so maybe that's carried over into management, right? That's just you my have those vibes. Now that I think about it, yeah. you kind of have that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I want to switch to something slightly. Yeah, you got that look, the bald. I'm not. No, hang on one second. One comment there. Oh, you want to go? You want to go further on it? <laughs> yeah, I want to go further on that because because I think it's important when we talk about like that compassionate state and whether or not we get over the hump, we can practice it because while we're talking about it in macro terms, right? The Rodney's experience as a black man in the United States or female experience, like just what that applies to them. At the same time, you were talking like this pandemic is an opportunity to practice that on, on the minute level. What if you're just a person who needs to get out of the house and go to the office every day? Like that, when you have to then be home for 24 hours straight, you're suffering in a way that I might not be because I'm a homebody and I can stay at home for whatever it may be. You live in a high rise fits. I live on 11 acres. So in the pandemic and we're virtual, I can go out in the woods and go get nature and you have to go in the hallway and maybe down to the lake, right? So that exposure, that experience. So these, these are the tiniest things of difference that we can all practice so then when we see those bigger things and i'm speaking more to the audience when we see those bigger things we're better prepared to go oh i get it like you just experience life differently than i do and i'm going through this right now i'm trying really really hard to separate myself from like how my wife reacts to certain things because you know it's super easy to personalize it and it's like why are you reacting that way and it's this conscious effort to think Okay, because she's not me. Because she is. She like does this. her own thing. And it's really, <laughs> really freaking hard sometimes. <laughs> uh, you talking made me think like, I know a lot of people who converted garages into offices or people added on whole additions to their house to have an office. I'm like, damn, bro, like, that's nice. <laughs> like, not everybody <laughs> can do that. <laughs> yeah. Something I want to go, I want to go to from your book, from the second edition of debugging teams because i say your book there's multiple i want to talk about the genius myth because something you said earlier sparked it and i'd already pegged it like i wanted to talk about it because keith and i talk about the bootstrap pulled up by my bootstraps idea and i think they're very it's very similar but i i actually think the genius myth is a little bit more accessible like it like if somebody would have told me that when I was in engineering, because I thought I was the smartest kid in the room or like whatever, like it would have really spoken to me. So could you share with us the genius myth a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. I think the genius myth is this idea that people who are creative or entrepreneurial, right? They, they really, they're attracted to the idea of, of doing something special and unique and sort of drawing all the attention to themselves. And it's, it's a normal human impulse, right? Like, People love the idea. Like I, I made this thing. Look at look 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 at look at my accomplishment, right? 
But the thesis of our book is that software engineering is not an individual activity. It is inherently a team sport. And so that attitude of, I want to do everything myself is not compatible, right? And you'll see this with a lot of folks new to software engineering, where they'll be like, well, I'm just going to go write this thing by myself for a month. And then when it's done, I'll, I'll show you how awesome it is, right? And during that time, you probably made 20 wrong turns. Nobody was there to correct you. You probably just wasted a ton of time. You probably duplicated something that somebody already made. Like basically working alone is really harmful. The whole thesis there is that, guess what? At least in software, there are no geniuses, right? There's no like brilliant person who went and wrote this piece of software by themselves, right? Even in the specific, oh, Linus Torvalds wrote Linux by himself. No, he didn't. He wrote it. He coordinated a ton of people. He just put his name on it. Right. Like Bill there's Gates. a bunch of myths like that. Bill Gates. Yeah. He, he wrote all of DOS by, no, no, he didn't. Steve Jobs. He, uh, Steve he Jobs. bought a lot of that and packaged yeah. it really nicely. Yeah. Steve Jobs was just a really good marketer for the Mac. Right. He didn't like build a really it good himself. marketer. Right. I mean, right. No, Microsoft so these, had to give him $150 yeah. million. Dollars, right? right. I mean, so all these people are great leaders, but they were not geniuses sitting in a, they weren't like Tesla inventing something in a cave. Right. That's like people are works. waiting for the, this yeah. kind of idea that people are waiting for this aha moment that is going to be the yeah. magnum opus of their life. When Tesla is a great example in that he in, in did it. it in a cave, but he couldn't market it. He couldn't make it happen. He couldn't do anything <laughs> yeah. with it. Right? It was all stolen yeah. by Edison. It was like, all stolen. And then Edison <laughs> takes it right? Yeah, right. and does it with a team and builds it and goes, right? So even if you are a genius, you're going to fail <laughs> if you work it yeah. alone. <laughs> that everything Ben said, Ben, and on the, there's an, another sort of dimension of the genius myth, which is that people don't realize genius is a, is a commodity. Basically, there's tons of smart people Ouch. out there, in the world. and and being, <laughs> being my heart, being oh. like <laughs> sorry about that, Ben. Being super good at one particular dimension of your job does not make it worth dealing with a whole bunch of other crap. And I see this all the time in teams. Someone's like. Oh, we've got this one coder who's a 10x coder or something like that. And you know what I say is, show me a 10x engineer. I will show you a 100x wake of destruction they've left behind them that the rest of the team is busy cleaning up. I've seen this multiple times. This is someone just optimizes for a very particular thing and just goes in that direction and people really value it. And what then they're a rock star. Them. Come on, we only hire rock stars. Yeah, we see it in sales so like keith and i've been in sales for our tech career and so we see it where like the top performer so usually the alpha male or female that can like close deals gets promoted to manager and they suck with people like they're a dick i don't want to work for like no i can't nobody can work for that person and and nine times out of ten flame out because exactly the wake of destruction that is left you see this in software engineering too, right? Where, I mean, it fits. Yeah, you're a great engineer and you gain a shitty mix. In a, right. In a traditional software company, there's sort of one job ladder for engineering, right? And at some point, as you climb that ladder, they force you to become a manager at some point. And wh- what that fails to recognize is that management is a completely different skill than writing code. They are not the same thing. And so it's, it's the Peter principle, right? You suddenly, like Fitz said, you just lost your best coder and now you've traded them for the world's worst manager, right? It's, it's absurd. A lot of companies do this now. I think Google was one of the first companies to do this, where they're like, you know what? We're going to have two different ladders. We're going to have a, a coding ladder and a management ladder, and they're not the same. And you can move between the ladders, but we're not going to treat them as the same discipline. They're just not. Right? We're not going to put them one to the other. 
Is it because a lot of people assume that leadership is like inherent and not a skill that you can teach? Is that why companies like? Yeah, I think they just think, well, you know, leadership, you just figure it out as you go or. But even Google didn't value management for most of the time they were there. They were just sort of starting to figure it out. Like my very first all hands, which I think might have been like the week before you started, Ben, because I started a week before Ben. Someone got up at this engineering all hands and asked, like, can we have more managers? And I had been at Apple before this. And I'm like, you would have gotten shot on site if you'd brought this up in an engineering all hands at Apple. <laughs> you know, because there's managers stacked up like cordwood in the hallway. <laughs> it's a different skill set. It's a different important thing. The, the more dangerous thing around the genius myth, keeping someone around who, uh, if I can come back to that, is toxic, very good at a single thing, but toxic to the team as a whole, is you poison the entire team. You wind up with a lot of good people who aren't going to, put up with that crap who will leave you wind up with this sort of very instead of a, a you know pyramid it's kind of squat and sturdy and strong where you've got younger new junior folks and then you work through it senior you wind up with this sort of string thing with the one person way up here and it's very people start to leave and the people that stick around are the ones that either like working with a jerk or are a jerk or can't get a job somewhere else They're stuck everything's and you a lot of genius yeah. that also tends to be very conducive to white dudes like Generally speaking, other folks don't want to deal with that. Well, and also, I you know, that comment about white dudes, like, so Keith was talking earlier about uh, pushing back on the paternity thing. Like, I got a knot in my stomach because if I would have got pushback, I would have just been like, well, I guess this is what we're doing. Yeah. Because I was already uncomfortable enough taking the leave. Like, yo, like, I'm already going to get looked at because I'm, ta- I'm actually using this because of all kinds of reasons. But it's a good point that it, a lot of it is conducive to it's just conducive to the group that's in power like it's just it's not a negative thing it's just a fact yeah it just is a reality and it's the biases and benefits of the doubt that we give to certain people based on taught context like that's you know these are the things that we learn what i like about this conversation and the book like you're talking about software companies talking about software engineering we were talking about it in the sales context but like this really applies to team because a lot of what you're talking about is communication and there is psychology in there but it's like i mean you even call you that's why you made the second edition like this actually applies outside of just software engineers i love the sentiment like genius is not perfect right it's just because you're a genius doesn't mean you don't make mistakes and thus, just at its very basic principle, you need someone to QA your work. Didn't Einstein forget his shoes a lot? All the time. He was very <laughs> Yeah, but, but I mean, I, I do want to be really, really clear that I think there are a lot fewer geniuses out there than people think, A. And B, there's Well, a I mean, I'm, I'm one, but... <laughs> okay, well, other than Rodney. Um, but the, the other side of that is how many geniuses out there are really good people in the field or just smart people you'd want to work with didn't get a chance because they were part of, of some disenfranchised group or something like that. Or, you know, they there's some woman that got abused in a class, of which was mostly dudes, you know, like those kind of things. So... Which actually, I mean, it speaks to what, what we're probably looking for in team environments the Michael Jordan analogy used in the book. Like we're looking for the MJs and not necessarily looking at Cartwrights and the Pippins and the Coo coaches and everybody else that was on the team that was actually really, really good that made up the bulk of that team. And end up making up better coaches than the Coach. MJ. 
<laughs> as as a group of four dudes uses sports to explain. <laughs> yeah, always, always. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's, that's uh, where I take that. But I do, I do like Rodney. I think it's interesting your tie to the the bootstrap myth, right? Which people are super resistant to. I pick myself up from my bootstraps and I do it and I go. But no one, like you, literally can't do it alone. You're going to be given an opportunity. You don't just storm into Google and go, I'm working here today, right? And then fill out your own <laughs> HR paperwork and then submit payroll bootstrap and do time. all of those things, right? Like it's bootstrap time. And here's my code, Ben. Run it. Google Run search, it. brand new, oh. right? Like it just doesn't oh. work that way. It's a great, I think, a great parallel that's a lot more digestible and less polarizing. To, to understand the concept that we, none of us lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah. And, and I think I, people would often say, well, you, you're a software engineer and you work at Apple, you worked at Google and you never took a class. Like you're, so you're a self-taught engineer. And I've always sort of bristled at that. Like some of it is, is self-learning and how I learn. I always said that I, I managed to go around. I did a lot of open source work where I traded really bad code for really good mentorship. Yep. And that mm. was sort of how I got better. So it wasn't, self-taught it was like self-seeking teachers i would say ben was one of them back exactly. in the day no but same thing i never took i never studied cs i'm all yeah. you didn't nope. yeah mm. but you taught me a lot about c when i first started writing c i'll be honest though i think that's privilege it's also that was the environment in the 90s where we were coming out of college it was like everybody was self-taught right cs programs were not as common my school didn't even have one right and so Nowadays would be like, well, what do you mean? Of course, everyone, if you want to be a software engineer, you've got to take, get a CS degree. I mean, I understand why it's very easy because the ego is sitting right there. Like, yo, like we did this. We did it. Like I didn't need college. Like I, I did it. I, <laughs> nobody helped me. It's easy to kind of just lean into that versus saying like, well, I had a computer available. Yep. Right. The you fact know, that like, we could teach ourselves was privilege. Right. right. We yeah, had the technology. Right? Learn all this stuff. Yeah. I could I did I wasn't working, you know, a, a day job of 80 hours a week back then. So I had plenty of time in the evenings to goof off, play video games, and write stuff. The could learning, like this is what broke me on feeling like the smartest person in the room or like acting like I was the smartest person in the room, like I was a real big dick. And when I realized that like my mental capacity to understand the information coming in is very different than some other people. Not genius level. I mean, I think so, but probably not on the Mensa test. But it's like, when I realized that I could give other people space to be like, okay, maybe they're not an idiot. Maybe they're not dumb. Maybe they just learn things differently or at a different pace or not at all. And it's just, that's just who they are. That's it. No value ascribed to it. No value. And, and people that don't learn that especially managers can be really harmful to people i have a friend who is an amazing program manager like one of the best I, no the best i ever worked with and they went off to another company and they worked in a very particular style it was very free form it was very go it was make things happen and their manager did not their manager worked in a very like by the books follow steps a b c d e and the person came in and they like shipped this product really and the manager was not happy like yeah but you did all this free form weird stuff you need to do it this way you can do it my way that's the right way and this person was utterly miserable and couldn't work that way and wound up leaving and going somewhere else but like that's the kind of things that you can do you can lose really good people that you want to work with by doing stuff like that 
Yeah. So I'm curious, Fitz, you left to start your own company. You no longer are in big tech. Ben, you are still in big tech. And in that, you still write books together. You still, it's not this need to do the same thing, but you do the things you do together. What led you, Fitz, to leave? And I'm curious, Ben, what draws you to stay? You should talk, Fitz. I mean, okay, mine's going to be more interesting after you talk. All right. So I left mainly because I wanted Ben to be more interesting. Wait, ow! <laughs> Yikes. Bazinga. Wait, Fitz, why don't you tell them how you left? Because Fitz and I, we started the Google Chicago office together, basically. Yes. We right. built that office over many years. We were sort of the cultural stewards. And then in 2014, Fitz decided he was going to leave. Yeah, so, so Ben and I started working together in 98. Uh, when I hired Ben as a contractor. And then Ben pulled me in a few years later to work on Subversion. And then we both left to work to start Google's engineering office here in Chicago. But like, so you were my work spouse for 16 years straight. That's a long time. A long time. Wow. It was great. Like one of the hardest things about leaving was really, I wasn't going to get to work with Ben every day, but I was really <laughs> afraid to tell him. So we were going to give a talk at this internal Google conference in Monterey. And I waited till I was doing about 80 miles an hour on the freeway to tell him because I knew he wouldn't have to open the door and just jump out. <laughs> I, I feel that. I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I think what, what inspired me to leave is that I wasn't leaving Google. I was going towards something new. This, the concept that my business partner had come up with, someone in, who's in the restaurant uh, industry, I thought that, A, it was the right thing. It was where the industry was going in the future, A. B, it was where the industry should go. And C, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a solution that solved two sides of the problem. For good, it was good for restaurants. It was good for their guests. And that was really compelling to me, yeah, the opportunity to build a team and a product to do that. The second part of it was that I had built very successful teams and products at Apple and Google. Uh, I hadn't done that on my own. And I was like, yeah, I kind of want to see if I can do this on my own. That was the thing that, that drew me towards this thing. Wasn't, I mean, it was really hard to leave Google. I had a fantastic job. You know, Ben and I were still sort of the stewards of the Chicago office, despite there being some other directors that came through here and there. So cushy, such a cushy job. It was a great <laughs> job. It was like I, I was responsible for importing, exporting, deleting data worldwide for Google's users. And I had a pretty good gig. So it was definitely not an easy decision. And entrepreneurship has been interesting. It's been a lot more challenging than I thought. It, it meets my desire to do a bunch of different things, but at the same time, it's, it hits me harder in some other areas. But one of those areas was like, I, I certainly talked about this before, I missed working with Ben a lot. We, were, we eventually got together and to do like a weekly standing meeting that we have where we just catch up and sort of talk about what's on our minds or what's bugging us, could be work, could be personal, et cetera. But it's kind of hard. One of the challenges of like Ben being the director of the office and me being the CTO of a small company you just don't have somebody you can go to and like, you know, be like, oh my God, like, you know, I, need, I don't have another engineer necessarily that's at my exact level at the company that I could share that with. And so I think Ben has a little bit of that as well being in Chicago. So we, t we help each other out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just trying to figure out. No, 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 this is great. I love building stuff too. And, and that's, I always tell people I'm not entrepreneurial. What I really mean is, I am not interested in startups. I'm not interested in being in a startup. I'm not interested in starting my own business. Everybody assumes that that's what everybody does, right? Or that that's the American way or something. And I'm like, no, because it's pain and it's not 
the risk, the pain reward ratio is not there for me. And it is for some people, right? That said, I love building stuff creatively in a group of collaborators and my entire career and every of my 27 hobbies revolves around that pattern. Find a bunch of smart, creative people, form a think tank, build something cool and creative, right? I've done that many times at Google in terms of just teams. Let's go, let's build a think tank, let's solve this problem. Let's build a team, let's, right? So you can do that in software. We did that in open source. We did that at Google, but all my hobbies, right? Playing Dungeons and Dragons, you're building a world with a bunch of smart people in a room, right? Collaboratively. I've, I've written a bunch of musicals and had them performed in places, right? That's me with a few other smart people, a, a, you know, a lyricist and a director and a book writer. And I, I write the music with my friend. Same thing. Small group of people building a really cool creative project. That's what gets me excited. And I do it in a lot of different ways, right? And for me, like <laughs> going up and starting a business is too much. It's uh, oh, it's a lot of pain. It's it's, it's a ton of pain, right? And I can get yeah. that thrill for cheaper. I think. And, and I just want to, I want to toot Ben's horn for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're very good at doing that yourself. Ben solved a problem at Google that they hadn't been able to solve since 1998. Oh, <laughs> and sure. like that's super freaking amazing and blows my mind. And like that, that's just a testament because like you just went off and did that. Well. I did it with a bunch of smart people, right? It was me and four other smart people in a think tank. <laughs> Correct. It was. You You led that charge. Sure, you sure. were the one that was handed the pile of garbage and you turned it into a beautiful statue. And then you went on to your next thing. And I think that speaks to, you know, your general like, yeah, I just want to build stuff and move along and I do that kind of stuff. And that's one of the things that's great about you. Uh, we, we have different things that we like to do uh, and we're good at it. All right, go ahead, Rod. Before we wrap, I want to, just three things I took I mean, from what you two just, just said. By so fast. It's too fast. It's too fast. And we, we <laughs> talked about one, one principle from the book. Like there, yeah. I want to yeah. drain the chapters one by one with you guys. Yeah. Empty cup. Sign up. But three things, three things I took from you. Fits. Run toward, not from. Ben, know yourself and know what, what gets you up and keeps you going. And don't let anybody else tell you that it needs to be different. It, there's nothing wrong with being F lifer at corporate or a, a serial entrepreneur or a, a gig doing it with with 17 jobs however you whatever does it for you and then lastly i think we all need friends that are willing to talk us up <laughs> <laughs> yeah need a hype man everybody needs need a, a hype, hype man, man. like come on yeah. now like, well, I, I know this interview is almost over, but I just want to bring my friend in to, to tell you some more of my strengths before we end this, uh, <laughs> this interview for this new job. So you two, this is fun. You guys, your chemistry and your, your relationship is very present. It's, it's like very you. present. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a few years down the road. It's like, yeah, I see right. where this is going. Yeah. No. It's one of the reasons we like to give talks together is because it's really hard to fall asleep or do email and you're in a room and two dudes are basically having an argument in front of you on stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, are they, yeah. is this Absolutely. really happening right now? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, it is. This is going on. Yeah. You just need to hold on a second audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to thank you guys for giving up some time for us too. This is largely like we get so much out of these conversations. We learn so much and the audience does too. So just really appreciate you sharing this with us and look forward to talking to you more because there's just so much goodness out of your minds. All right, guys, before we wrap this up, how can people find you? Where can they find you? 
we're we're actually in the process of, of uh, putting our book up debugging teams at debuggingteams.com and this the book will be available for free to read online excerpts download in various formats etc we're really excited to be able to just basically share this with everyone who can download it or take a look at it on the internet absolutely awesome. thanks yeah. the last question and we've touched on this a lot today so this will probably be really hard for you what does compassion mean to you selflessness i think is the heart of it and that's hard to learn i think it means seeing something seeing something in someone else's eyes and feeling it the feelings that they're feeling it's incredibly powerful and it can be incredibly painful but learning compassion was i felt for me was like going from living in black and white to color but like i got a whole new dimension that i could see it brings me a lot more peace